Hello, welcome to the Pastor's Bible Study Podcast of Trinity Lutheran Church in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Jack Horner. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity, and I'll be doing the first section of this um, Bible study based on the book of Nehemiah, and it's entitled Rebuilding Life from the Ruins. Pastor John Brock will also be uh, participating in this as well, and he will be with us uh, next week. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of the book of Nehemiah, and it's entitled Return, Inspection, Inspiration, and Action. We've used uh, just single words to kind of describe the uh, individual sections that we'll be looking at uh, in the book of Nehemiah and the various chapters that we're going to be looking at. Uh, But I think you're really, really going to enjoy this Bible study. Um, we were talking about it uh, this morning in the Bible study that was in person and that, and that I'm not familiar of uh, Nehemiah being in the three-year lectionary, uh, but certainly it has been a book that I have used many, on many different occasions in doing leadership training with members of my congregation, whether it's the church council or the staff. Uh, it is, just has some really wonderful leadership messages, leadership lessons uh, for the church uh, today. So let's begin with the uh, first with the first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chizab, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, "The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was the cupbearer to the king. So that sets the stage for everything that is going to be happening. Uh, This is really a continuation of the episode that began in the book of Ezra, which is right before this, uh, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Ezra is the scribe who helped establish the Jewish practices in Jerusalem after the exile. So this is taking place after the exile from uh, uh, to Babylon from for, for the Israelites. You'll recall that in 587, that's a date you definitely want to remember because it's really important in the Old Testament. 
In 587, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. It, re, it, it represents the end of the Davidic monarchy and Israel as a political entity. It also, as a, as a, as a part of that, uh, led to the deportation of the population, of much of the population, especially those that uh, had authority, those that were political leaders, religious leaders, uh, economic leaders. They are deported uh, throughout the kingdom of or the empire of, of Babylon. And so this really led to a, a radical reassessment of Israel's identity and their relationship with God. They had to reflect, well, what happened to them? How did this happen? How were, had they been abandoned by God? Were the gods of Babylon victorious or was God responsible for their situation? Would they ever be delivered from exile? And of course, the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah and the later uh, parts of, the, uh, of Isaiah, uh, answer largely negative on these questions that, yes, it was the people, it was the Israelites themselves that led to that. And we can see that in this where, where Nehemiah is saying, uh, both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes. He's talking about something that happened probably 150 years before this, this when, when, when the Israelites and, and the and Israel was destroyed, and then the people put into uh, and, and the people put into exile. Uh, Nehemiah, of course, is is uh, you know working with the the kings uh, with the kings of the Persian Empire, uh, and is a part of that. He is the cupbearer, which means that he not only is the one that that drinks the wine to make sure that it's not poisoned, but he also has a lot of responsibility. Uh, the cupbearers were also, uh, in some cases, the the financial. Um, the CFO, if you will, of, of the empire. And so he has a lot of responsibility. And this book of Nehemiah is really concerned with that kind of last return of those, those last set of exiles and the rebuild, rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, for which we can see that he is very upset about, which leads him to, to prayer and, and fasting. Um, so Ezra and Nehemiah are our only narrative source uh, for the history of this restoration that occurs of the people, of the Jewish people returning back to uh, the Holy Lands, if you will, back to Judah and to Jerusalem, which occurred in 538 to 430 uh, BC. They tell the stories of the reestablishment of the Jewish religious community and the implementation of the Jewish law or the or the, the, or, the, or the Torah. But something else is happening here which is really, really important. The people had to understand why this happened to them because there is a fundamental change in their identity that has occurred. Before, the Israelites were ruled by a king, which was political. So their identification of themselves was one of political. They were Israelites ruled by a king. And it was also locals to that area. But now they are Jews in exile. And it's a religious identification, right? It's a religious identification. And it could happen anywhere. It is wherever there are Jews, right? And it's not only just uh, uh, secular Jewish, but Jews following the Torah, following the the, the law of God as it was presented to Moses. Okay, so there. This is a this is a real big change of of who they are and what they and what they were and what was important to them. Um, but it is also important, and they begin to understand and accept that kind of 
that necessity of the, of the judgment and exile, it occurred because they were not being faithful. But it also is not going to be God's final word. They're not going to be just uh, left off to themselves. God indeed is going to act on behalf, and there is hope. And you can see that in the later chapters of the book of, of, of Isaiah, where it, where it turns from not just destruction, but also to hope. And we think about the suffering servant uh, narratives, which, which uh, show that the servant is going gonna, is gonna to be uh, uh, hurt and, and mocked, but also that God is going to intervene on behalf of that, of, of that person as well. So these are the sons and the daughters and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those who have now returned out of exile and have gone back into the land of their forefathers and their foremothers. And it's meant to encourage them in the situations that now they, uh, now they face. As I said, Nehemiah holds the important position of a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Uh, and this is during the mid-5th century B.C. reign of Artaxerxes. And so let's hear a little bit more about that. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. And then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah, and a letter to Asaph, and keep the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them, to, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Hunnerite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So this, uh, this is happening now in mid-November to mid-December on the, uh, or in mid-November to mid-December is when uh, Nehemiah met some of the uh, uh, exiles that had returned from Jerusalem and gets a, a sense of what is going on. Um, and then, so now it's uh, a little bit later. He's in Susa, 225 miles east of Babylon. This is the winter residence of the kings of Persia. Now, Jerusalem's walls have been destroyed by the Babylonians 140 years earlier. 
And so the people that now live there were very vulnerable. They don't have the protection that they might have, uh, that they would have had if they would have had uh, walls, you know, surrounding the city and the gates also in working order. And the Jews lamented the exile. And so, um, and, and, and are, are lamenting that the, their city is in such a, is in such a bad, in such a bad shape. Well, now it's mid-March to mid-April. And he is given, uh, he, he goes to the king uh, to talk to him about this situation. He's given time to think about it and to kind of formulate what he wants to be able to say uh, to the king that he is serving. As I said, he is the cup bearer. Uh, so he has direct access, access to the king. He has very uh, great influence among the king. Uh, he is not only the, the, the cup bearer or the wine taster, but he is also the bearer of the signet ring that the king would use to sign official documents and also served as the chief financial officer. That was the role, that was the role of, the, uh, of, of the cup bearer. And so, of course, the king sees that he has a sad face, which is not something you want when your cupbearer has a sad face, right? This is the person who's checking to make sure you're not going to be poisoned. So he asks what his request, his request is, and he tells him about the, the situation with the city and especially about the city walls. And then he asks him, please send me to be able to fix this for my, for my people who are now returning home. You see, the Persians have now allowed, have freed the Jews who were in bondage in Babylon and is basically is allowing them to return now back to the land of their forefathers and their foremothers. And so he asks him to send him with letters so that he can give it to the governors that are beyond there. So he wants to be able to extend the king's authority. So he wants to show up with proper documentation that, yes, the, the king has asked him to be a part, to, to, to do what, what is in the letters. He also sends letters um, to the keeper of the king's forest, which is probably in Lebanon, which is known for its, um, its, which is known for its uh, forests and timbers. Timbers to make beams for the temple fortress, which is probably uh, in, in the spot of where the fortress Antonio would be later, uh, and for to uh, fix the walls of the city, as well as to create for himself a house to, that he could occupy. The timber was used as the foundation, and then, of course, they would use uh, either stone or mud bricks uh, to create, the, um, to create the, 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 the rest of it. The king grants what he has asked for, and notice what he says, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. It wasn't because of the king's God. It was because of, of Nehemiah's God. Now, some of the word that he uses, by the way, for the God is, is, is I prayed to the God of heaven. That is a, a term, the God of heaven, something that the uh, Persians would often use in their description of, of, of their God. So he gets those letters, and then he goes, and he comes with his entourage with some officers of the army and the cavalry that is with him for his protection. And then he meets Sanballat, who is a Honorite, and Tobiah an Ammonite, and they are not happy that this has happened. Sanballat is opposed to Nehemiah because Jerusalem and Judah had previously been under his jurisdiction, and now it's being taken over by Nehemiah himself. Tobiah is an Ammonite, and there had been fighting for, for the, with the Israelites for generations, all the way back to King, to King Saul. So by generations, I mean five, six hundred years, they had been fighting 
with one another. So the idea that the Jews are now returning back to that area, he's not happy about that at all. So now he decides to look, take a look at the walls and to inspect. And this is what it says, uh, beginning with the 11th verse in the second chapter. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. I got up during the night, and I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, past the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by the way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I returned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. So notice what he does here. He gets up at night. He gets up at night because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to show his hand, if you will, of what he is there to do. His inspection was discreet, but it was also thorough. He's probably riding a donkey or a mule, which is sure-footed and generally silent. Now, it's not really clear where he went. We have the descriptions of the places, but it's a little hard for archaeologists to figure out exactly where he was going because, obviously, it happened a long time ago. Now, Jerusalem, no doubt, was much smaller than it was in the time of Jesus. At this time, Jerusalem is probably about a mile and a half in circumference. Uh, that would be about 80 or 90 acres. So it's really not all that big, especially for a city. And he's not willing to tell at this point what's going on to the priests or to the nobles, which would be those representatives of the Persian Empire, both those that were local as well as those that had come with him. But he has this sense of what he wants to do, and now he's willing to share it with those people. Beginning in verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its great gates burned. And as I said, those had been burned for 140 years. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. They said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sambalit, the Honorite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we are his servants, are going to start building. But you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. This is a really great uh, section. He, he finally now tells those, uh, the, the people that are gathered, this is what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild these walls that have been broken down for a hundred plus years. And we see that the people have a united and eager response to his words. They must have been waiting for this moment to be able to do that. And this is, of course, then would be a confirmation of Nehemiah, of, of what God had set on his heart to do, you know. 
Nehemiah in the first chapter had, had prayed and fasted and mourned what had been going on, but also had been seeking direction from the Lord of what to do. The king has, has helped him with that, and, and now he is able now he is able to do it. Immediately they just start, they say, let us start building. And they commit themselves to the they commit themselves to the common good. But as we know, with vision and action also comes opposition, and it gets ugly pretty quickly. Sanibalit, who we heard about before, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and now a new name, Geshem, the Arab. The Arabs had begun reset, had begun settling in the Negev, uh, which is the, the uh, wilderness section, as well as the Transjordan regions. What's interesting about this person of Geshem is there are a lot of extra biblical sources about him, about him and his uh, and his relatives who came after, after him. So that's really interesting that we have this uh, uh, definite historic figure who is also against uh, Nehemiah and what he's trying to do. Of course, they, the, many of the Jews have been taken out of this whole area. Now they're coming back, and they and they all see this as a as a threat uh, to to them as these uh, Jews from former exile come back and now try to, 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 re, to rebuild their life and then their city. Now, in Ezra chapter 4, which is uh, what the, the, the book that happens before this, which is uh, uh, taught from uh, really the Ezra who gets to um, uh, Jerusalem about 10 years before Nehemiah, uh, when they were rebuilding the temple, uh, these same locals dissuaded the Israelites from fixing the walls. But now here is Nehemiah, and he's going to see to it that it is done. Rather than retaliating against them, Nehemiah immediately states his confidence in God's power to give him success. But he also makes it clear, and you'll notice the language, that you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. What he's making it clear to them is they have no legal authority over Jerusalem. Nehemiah is the person who has been appointed by the, um, uh, by the Persian king to do the work that he has given him. They don't have any say in what's going to happen. But what we see that happens after this, and this is really wonderful in, uh, in the beginning of, it's actually, it's almost all of chapter 3. And I'm going to just read a few of it to give you a, a little bit of it to give you a sense of what's happening, but it's really, really special. Then the high priest, Eliashib, set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him, and next to them, Sakor, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasenani built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, made repairs. And next to them, Meshruham, son of Berechiah, son of Mesulabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Banai, made repairs. Next to them, the Tetelkites made repairs, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Okay, I'm just using this as, a, as, a, as an example, and it goes on for the whole chapter. All of these different people involved in the repairs. And it's really kind of 
it's really neat because you, we see everyone at work. See, what Nehemiah had done is he had provided the leadership and the organizational skill to be, and, and, and quite honestly, the vision for what people could see could happen. They could see God's preferred ending here, that God was going to restore Jerusalem and to rebuild Jerusalem. And so they provided a unified and a very focused groups to rebuild all of those various sections. If you, if you look at it and you add them all up, it's 40 or more sections working simultaneously and unselfishly. They've given up their personal pride and ambition to the larger task that is before them. Kind of reminds us of, of Jesus' prayer for his followers in John, that they might all be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And this list of all of these people that are, are, that are doing the work speaks eloquently of this diversity of interest of those that are engaged in the work. You'll notice that some of those that participated as you read it, they did it on the basis of family association. They were all part of the same family. Others did it as individuals. Some did it with because they lived in certain sections of the, of the community, certain districts of the community, if you will. And others because of professional association. For example, at, at, at some different times, the, the goldsmiths are involved and the perfumers, those that made perfume, are at work, working on rebuilding the walls and the gates in their areas. See, Nehemiah allowed each one of those groups to be responsible so far it was possible for them to work on the sections of the wall that they had the greatest vested interest. Those are the places where they worked, where their families lived. The repairing of the gates and the walls are going to protect their homes, their place of business, and their families. And so we see this community coming together based on a common vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, inspired by Nehemiah uh, to be able to do that. And they're able to make, they're able to make those repairs. Now we're also going to see that there was going to be a response. There always is. Next week, Pastor Brock is going to go over uh, Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6, verse 14. And you're going to see some opposition, some strife, and some perseverance. But in these first three chapters, we see the exiles return, the inspection of the work that needed to be done, Nehemiah's inspiring words to the people and the actions of the people to rebuild their life from the ruins. Thank you so much for joining us for this Bible study. Take care and God bless you.